welcome to the Apologetics.com radio show, where we challenge believers to think and thinkers to believe. Good evening. I'm Harry Edwards, your host for the evening. So we're going to be covering Chapter 3 of Paul Gold's uh, book, Cultural Apologetics. So if you've uh, been listening to us, then you know that we uh, have covered Chapter 1 and Chapter 2. Now, tonight, my good buddy and I are going to be... uh, talking about Chapter 3, which is re-enchantment. So I want to welcome to the show, uh, you all know him, Jacob, Dr. Jacob Daniel. How are you doing? I'm doing much better, Harry. I've been missing not being in the studio for a month now. It's good to be back. And yeah, uh, it's one of the most, mo- most enjoyable time being in the studio and discussing all things apologetics. Good, good. Any uh, you want to give our listeners an update on Heritage Council? Yeah, um, uh, we, um, I mean, I've been involved in terms of like some writing recently and doing some research uh, with regards to cultural challenges um, that we are facing and just being prepared to engage with it and preparing the church to do that. And, and that's a big task in front of us. So a lot of writing. Um, uh, um, I'm preparing to actually be speaking at a youth retreat um, I'm covering four major topics, uh, race, mm-hmm. uh, gender, uh, identity, and how, how we can be responsible to engage with these issues as a Christian. So, yeah, yeah getting ready for that. No small feat. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, tonight we have a special guest. His name, and he's calling in, actually. His name is Logan Zapieri. Are you on, Logan? Are you with us? Okay, well, Log. Lo- okay, Logan, you're there, right? Welcome to the show. Yes. All right. Yeah. No, thank you for having me. Yeah. Hey, tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, I think our listeners would want to know. Yeah. So uh, I'm a holy master's degree from Talbot School of Theology and Philosophy. Um, most recently, I've done uh, hosted a few kind of read-throughs, actually, of, of different books. It's Thomas Sowell's work. Uh, we were going through a few of the um, main questions about social justice, looking at uh, Michelle Alexander, uh, D'Angelo, some of those popular level critical race theory stuff. And then I work uh, on a podcast called Equal Justice with Jacob Daniel, actually, and then uh, Tony Costello, yeah. where we're looking at fundamental human equality and how it applies to social situations. Great, great. I know um, both of you guys have been on our show at one point. I know you've been on our show uh, some uh, time within the last few months. So, welcome back. Yeah, we were. Yeah, we were talking about uh, the Supreme Court situation, Christian engagement in politics. I believe. Yeah. Right. Great. So, when you all have a chance, check out their um, their Facebook page. Lots yes. of good resources there on intersection of faith and public policy. Mm-hmm. Very good. Very good. So uh, tonight, um, it's one of my favorite topics. Actually, we're talking about reenchantment, and um, but before we get into that, we we need to find out what. Uh, disenchantment means or what enchantment means so here's a, a quick review and we did cover that uh this topic of uh, a month ago and a couple months ago actually so i would encourage you all to go there if you uh haven't heard our uh, first two shows on this 
It's on apologetics.com. So re-enchantment uh, is getting is the opposite of disenchantment. Obviously, we're, we're we're trying to get back to being enchant enchanted as individuals. But what what do you think we mean by this, uh, Jacob? Um, I know it sounds so. Uh, we're, we're using language that's not common in church or mm-hmm. amongst fellow believers. You know, w- when we think of the word enchantment, there's a lot of magic behind it. A lot of uh, uh, Disneyland uh, behind it, lots of imagination behind it, mm-hmm. and, and so we might um, we might not be all thinking the same ways on this. So, uh, but there's a lot of meaning behind the word enchantment. And uh, just a quick overview: prior to uh, the Enlightenment, people believed. In fact, uh, Charles Taylor uh, would suggest that it was pretty much impossible to live in community, live in society where God did not exist. In fact, there, there was something, um, uh, something beyond us, something... Uh, a lack of transcendence. Uh, yeah, there was, well, there, there, was, uh, there was transcendence, you know, prior mm-hmm. to uh, uh, the Enlightenment. Uh, and, and everything was imbued with that, yeah. literally everything. Um, and so you, you had that respect for uh, the unseen, the supernatural... And e- even if you didn't really think hard about these things, all of these were subconsciously hmm. in us. And that's the world we inhabited, right? Yeah. So uh, basically, uh, if, we, if we talk about disenchantment, um, it's a byproduct in one sense of modernity. Um, now what we've done is basically cosmology has essentially been emptied of any intrinsic dimension, right? Spiritual or symbolic dimension um, that would provide any cosmic order uh, um, uh, and thereby, human existence finds some kind of like grounding uh, of meaning and purpose. Uh, I like what um, Charles Taylor calls it, uh, uh, neutralizing the cosmos. That's the attempt, demystifying the cosmos of any transcendence. Uh, in wo- in a couple of words, we can say that it's uh, spiritual emancipation. Mm, yeah. Charles Taylor is a person everybody should read uh, when it comes to uh, if you want to understand the times we're living in, I think he does a, an amazing job. But you know, that. it was uh, um, Max Weber who actually coined the word disenchantment. Oh, really? Yes. No, didn't I wasn't familiar with that. Mm-hmm. Another uh, great author. Um, so, so enchantment would be uh, the reversal of that in the sense that we bring back uh, the need for transcendence and yes. how that provides cosmic order and thereby... Um, uh, a grand uh, narrative in one sense, providing meaning and purpose to our human existence. Right. All right. So that's a big word, transcendence. And by the way, if you are listening right now, we are coming to you live uh, here at the KKLA studios, and we would invite your calls and your comments. So the number to call is 888-995-KKLA. Again, that's 888 888- Nine nine five fifty five fifty two, and uh, basically what we're going to be covering is the idea of reenchantment, because we have lost the uh, that whole mystery behind transcendence, and uh, since we live now in a naturalistic worldview where 
all we think that is real are things that we could discern with our five senses. So that's what uh, the public school teaches us, right? So, the, the, or uh, as Ronald Nash would say, we're living in this box, and nothing exists outside this uh, naturalistic box. So miracles are are um, excluded from it. Uh, so if, if if there's a miracle claim, it is not to be believed. Uh, th- th- that's what. That's that's the age we live in mm. today. Uh, uh, so what we're saying is, uh, again, in chapter three, we need to get back. We need to be re-enchanted. Mm-hmm. And in my opinion, I'm going to make a strong claim, and you guys can, uh, you know, you can discuss this. We can discuss discuss this. But I'm thinking it's the first step to take if you're going to evangelize the West today. We need to start with making the idea that uh, that something is out there is plausible, that something transcendent is plausible, right? Mm -hmm. What do you think of that? Um, But before we get into that, just one thing. I I guess in the kind of like uh, postmodern engagement that we are having in the academia and also within the culture, I I believe – we have actually moved from disenchantment to a kind of, I'm going to use this term, uh, misenchantment, uh, which was coined by Matthew Segal uh, here at UCLA, I believe, if I'm not wrong. Um, uh, basically, the idea is, and I think, I think we're going to talk more about it, yeah. uh, whereas what we've done is actually uh, a, uh, an aversion to modernity and what it didn't deliver, uh, what it promised and not delivered. Because of that, we have replaced uh, uh, rationality with a kind of a misappropriation of our longings to personal desires and uh, things that we have. What we've done is actually we've made uh, objects of our desires according to our own personal uh, love. Uh, I, I'm sure we're going to talk more about yeah, that. Yeah. So I think there's a move from disenchantment to misenchantment. I like that, yeah. Yeah. Basically, what you're saying, I think we talked about this a while ago, Jacob, is, um, and, and you would be familiar with this, this is nothing new, but a lot of social scientists back in the 60s thought that as we became more modern, that we would be less religious. Mm. But in fact, the reverse has happened. We're actually more religious in, in, a, in a spiritual sense. Yeah. I'm not saying that everyone is more Christian now. Um, and, and we'll talk about this. Uh, I mean, it, the author Paul Gould talks about neo-paganism uh, yes. at some point. So uh, it, it's just our desires are misdirected. And so we have this false sense of, and, and we can include piety in there, re- religiosity in there. But it's it's a different sort. Um, and if if we as ambassadors for Christ don't help direct this, uh, we we can have a reenchantment that is based on bad things. Yeah, I'm sure Logan would have. Uh, yeah, Logan, Logan could, uh, yeah, chime in as well. <laughs> uh, but let me mention just one, uh, just one more thing. Um, we need to be seeing uh, the world that we are living in, uh, in in a way as we read in Romans. Right, Paul is very clear about expressing this. Is that we need to understand that God has established certain structures, and a good number of structures are pre-political. They're pre-fall. God is the one who is the author of those structures. But because of fall, uh, it, those structures could be directed to either honor God or dishonor God, 
right? And that applies to our imaginations as well. And, and the, 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 the social and cultural capital that we generate could be directed towards those um, end two. And that's where imagination plays a vital role. Right. We'll definitely talk more about how imagination captures our our minds and bodies for Christ, too. Um, hey, Logan, do you have anything to, to add to that? Uh, we're, we're just talking about disen- trying to define those terms, disenchantment and re-enchantment and, and things of the sort. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, you guys mentioned a, a few things I want to touch on. Um, the first one was this idea of sort of the Enlightenment project and disenchantment. And, and, and there's two parts. There's the enchantment part and then the enlightenment part. The enchantment part, as you said at the beginning, sometimes invokes this idea of Disney and magic and, you know, be home by midnight or you lose everything. This is That's not the sort of thing we're trying to get at. So the question is, what are the things that we're trying to get at? And this is why we started with the enlightenment project. One of them was sort of the mechanization of the universe. We sort of take this as an assumption nowadays, as you said, with the naturalistic framework, that there are just impersonal laws that govern the universe. And, and largely from the Enlightenment Project, that was successful with the advent of physics and how it, you know, engineering and these sorts of feats came to be on the assumption that you'd sort of remove all the contents out of the universe except these sort of objects, physical objects, and these impersonal principles. Now, what flips out of the picture is this enchanting part, and, and this is the, the personal aspect, is that if laws aren't designed, if things don't have sort of a, a God behind them, then questions like significance or meaning or value tend to evaporate. Hmm. And so this gets into the misenchantment, what uh, Jacob was talking about, is that we finally felt this idea of, well, if there's if there's just blind, impersonal forces at work, then where do we find purpose? Where do we find meaning? Where do we find value? And so we started to reinvent those sorts of things. I think we've done them wrongly, but this is sort of the quote-unquote enchanting project is asking the question, are there things of fundamental value that transcend just the sort of physical objects or the furniture we find lying around in the universe and the forces which we have sort of said governs those things? Is there anything more than that? And so I want to, I guess, harp on that point is when we talk about enchantment, we're talking about recapturing like transcendent meaning and value. And also recognizing that God has created us with uh, as, as beings with desire and longing. And those are some of the things that we tend to, I don't know, we've come to a place where a lot of people see those as always leading us or misleading us uh, from Christian virtues. But that's not the case. It's something given by God. We need to be orienting and directing it uh, towards a a place of virtue that honors God uh, and does um, fulfill the purpose that he has given us in terms of finding our meaning and purpose in our own life. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, exactly. If I let me interject real quick. Exactly, and that's where questions of like, how do you access these sort of blind, impersonal laws or forces? Well, through the intellect. Hmm. And so then the question naturally arises, what happens with emotion? What happens with desire? And if you look through sort of the 60s and such, a lot of those psychology and the social sciences were under sort of scientism, was sort of discarded as almost 
useless. Yeah. Um, so I just add that on to what Jacob was saying. No, that's good. In uh, chapter three of the book, we're covering cultural apologetics by Dr. Gold. Uh, he touches on C.S. Lewis's idea of the dialectic, the dialectic of desires, I believe. Mm-hmm. There's, a, there's a, a, a portion there, which if I'm understanding it correctly, because we do have desires and we try to find whatever it is that could satisfy those desires, but because they are misdirected at times, or it could be, and many times they, they are, like we discover things that aren't uh, satisfying. So we keep searching. But as we keep searching, the ones that don't work, we, you know, we discard it and, and, we, and hope that uh, we, uh, we find another way. But in the process, we're, there's that dialectic that happens uh, in, within us. So, so the search continues until we find that. And uh, I, I think... Uh, what what that says, I think it's a good uh, answer to the objection that um, that that perhaps the the, the act of desiring is uh, a non-issue that we shouldn't pursue. So we shouldn't be thinking that just because we have desires uh, that that means that uh, it could be neutral. I think that's what, uh, if I'm understanding it correctly. So in other words, it's it's okay to keep pursuing, and in our human nature. Uh, we will keep pursuing that. What, what um, uh, do you think that? Um, I, I think that d- develops us to, to to be the kind of person that'll seek the good, the true, and the beautiful. What, what do you think of that? Is that is that what uh, the dialectic of of desire means, or what can you add to that, Jacob? Um, here, uh, Doctor Gould, he is uh, basically. Uh, um, he, he borrows it from C.S. Lewis and describes in his own term as well-trodden path. I'm quoting him here now, Dr. Gould. Uh, we tether our hope to a false object, then enter, untether it and retether it to another false object again and again until the true object of desire is found. So, so here I believe uh, the emphasis is on the longing Right, the, the the purpose of longing within human beings, it it should direct us to the true object, right? That would ultimately bring contentment and and, and the fulfillment of that longing. And it may be argued that there is nothing in this world that can actually fulfill that unless it ends in God. Right. So God is the true object of our longings that fulfills. Uh, brings us to a place of flourishing, brings us to a place of goodness, truth, and beauty. Right, right. right? All being transcendent. Right, right. Uh, and those are the things that makes our life flourishing. And uh, I wanted to highlight real briefly in that whole dialectic where in the process of trying and figuring things out and, 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 and we discover that things just don't satisfy until we find satisfaction in Christ, right? I mean, that's very... Augustinian, Augustinian. Yeah, yeah, to begin with. But I think, let, let's say for this uh, generation that uh, we're in, um, you know, we're bombarded with lots of information. We are distracted. And it's not like there's a lack of information to where we can satisfy or, or, or the, the, to satisfy our curiosity gets hampered. 
we, we do have lots of uh, ways to gain information. But in this current generation, in the trial and error, I think some of them have become uh, slothful in their attitude. They become discouraged. They become lazy. And uh, so there's this spiritual apathy, or as the ancients would call it, sloth, right? Mm. And uh, just in my um, uh, research here, we know that Gen Z, uh, 34% of 13- to 18-year-olds consider spiritual life important. So just about a third of them. And then fewer still uh, find it worthy um, uh, or uh, as a future goal to get more spiritual. So th- th- those are some of the challenges that we face in this new generation. And, and, and by the way, this new generation, Gen Z, is uh, one of the largest, if not the largest, uh, uh, generations uh, that we have right now, 69 million of them. And so as uh, cultural apologists, I think our task then is twofold, as uh, Dr. Gold would say. Number one is we need to reawaken desire. Mm-hmm. That's number one. Number two, we need to return to reality. So we want to talk about those two things, really. We want to cover those two things um, tonight. And uh, I know we're almost at, at a break, but we want to just maybe set it up for when we come back uh, after the break. We, uh, what, what do you think? Uh, first of all, Jacob, what do you think? Um, how would we uh, define desires? Because, see, it, it sounds like desires are bad so if like you're a buddhist right desires mm-hmm. are bad yeah and uh there's lots of eastern influence that we have in our culture today so just the mere mention of the word desire might might have this negative uh, yeah. connotations for christians uh, for the apologetics purpose uh if a buddhist says that all desires are uh, basically misleading you from the actual reality uh, and you need to be shunning all desires that's in desire itself. Right. And how do you actually get rid of that is a problem. Um, so when we talk about desires, basically in simple terms, I, I understand it as um, the orientation of your heart, uh, right? Uh, uh, what is that your heart is leaning towards? That is what your desire is. Um, but at the same time, um, there might be uh, certain desires that you may have, but you may not know the object that fulfills those desire. So there is that disconnect that brings frustration, that brings uh, meaninglessness. Um, um, so there is a need to actually reawaken or awaken our desires uh, to orient it to its right object. Uh, and that can happen through three ways that Dr. Gould talks about, the way of imagination, the way of reason, the way of morality, and I'm sure we'll discuss that more. Sure. Uh, and then just to set up uh, the the second part, when I said return to reality, uh, what are we talking about there? We're talking about uh, – there's nothing fancy about that. We're talking mm-hmm. about the world we live in where uh, our five senses actually uh, absorb the things around us, sights, sounds, smells. Yeah. Uh, so so uh, Dr. Gould, again, in his book, uh, he mentions two things. Uh, we need to be – when – we say that we are Christians. We should be seeing the reality as Jesus does and also inviting others to see the reality as Jesus does. There's this aspect of becoming a disciple, a learner of Jesus, 
seeing and understanding how he sees reality and then the task of obeying his commission to make disciples of others and helping others to see the reality yeah. uh, and in doing that there's a return to reality the true reality as we should relate with as god would want god would want us to Logan, in a couple minutes, uh, do you have anything to add to that as we set it up for the second half hour of our show? Just anything on desire and anything on reality that you want to add? Um, yeah, I guess quickly, and, and this is something that you brought up about Lewis's sort of dialectic of desire. Um, the natural question kind of post-Enlightenment project is, well, how do you recapture this idea that desires have any sort of content that is wor- worth an- analyzing. And this is just a, Lewis would have been aware of this as a medievalist, but this is a, with a common practice that if you looked at Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics or Aurelius's Meditations, even the Book of Ecclesiastes opens with this with King Solomon saying, I've surveyed everything that I could possibly by hands on, I found it wanting. I looked at great projects, I looked at wealth, I looked at popularity, I looked at all these things, and they're all wanting. So what do I end up coming with left? You know, this was the sort of how wisdom literature was written. And so I think setting up for the question desires, okay, well, what does the desired content look like? And what you end up getting is this quest of, well, you're going to have to answer the question, what is the, the, the dialectic of desire? Yeah. Very good. All right, well... I'm hearing the music now, which means that's a signal to go to our station break. So you've been listening to Apologetics.com, and we will be back right after the break. The mission of Apologetics.com is to challenge believers to think and thinkers to believe on the radio, on the internet, and now in the Life of the Mind conferences. If you believe in the work that Apologetics.com is doing, we encourage you to support us with your prayers and also with your tax-deductible gift so that this ministry will continue on the air, on the web, and in events near you. Gifts of any amount are appreciated, and it's very simple to participate. Just go to Apologetics.com and click Donate. It's safe and secure. Or you can send your check or money order to Apologetics.com, 1900 Southwestern Avenue, San Pedro, California, 90732. Thank you for supporting Apologetics.com. When you awaken in the morning, what is the first decision you must make? Hi, I'm Chuck Swindoll. No, it's not whether to get up or what you're going to have for breakfast. It's what kind of attitude would you choose to face that day with? And I'm convinced our best attitudes emerge out of a clear understanding of our own identity and a deep sense of God's purpose for our lives. That sort of God-honoring attitude encourages us to press on, to focus on the goal, to respond in remarkable ways to life's most extreme tests and circumstances. So here's a good plan. Tomorrow morning, plan early on a good attitude. Pastor and teacher Chuck Swindoll. Visit Insight for Living's website at insight.org. 
Hi, ladies. Welcome to Open My Eyes. I'm Lori Wilburn. I'd like to invite you to pause and take a deep breath. As you do, reflect on the last year. What has God done in your life since last March? Psalm 139 says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts, and see if there be any hurtful way in me, and lead me in the everlasting way. It can be easy to forget what God is doing in the midst of your pressing circumstances. That's one of the reasons why reflecting on God's Word is so important. It helps us slow down and remember that God is faithful in every season. Ladies, remember, it's not she that reads most, but she that meditates most on divine truth. Only this will produce the choicest, wisest, and strongest woman of God. To learn more, visit my blog at corechurchla.org. All right, let's get back to the Apologetics.com radio show. All right, welcome back to the second half hour of the Apologetics.com radio show. We've been talking about disenchantment, misenchantment, the idea of just enchantment, and then now how do we get re-enchanted? And with me tonight is Jacob Daniel and Logan Zapieri. So welcome both of you again. Let's, uh, I guess, continue our discussion on this. What let, let's go practical. So, how do we reawaken desire? Do you guys have any uh, practical uh, ideas on that? Like, for instance, I know we can have bad desires, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, that would just be a result of the fall. But I was talking to you, Jacob, a while ago, and you know, I challenged. I would challenge anybody to th- think of if there are any desires that. Uh, doesn't uh, have its um, final source in God, you know. Uh, they, they, we might, uh, we might uh, appreciate them as maybe not good in the beginning, but then I think as cultural apologists, we have to do our best to find the good in them. Like for instance, uh, maybe a drug addict, we might say, might have the bad desire of obtaining drugs, right? But then in reality, what they're trying to do is use the drugs to escape this, what they would consider bad reality. And uh, and, and then even though it's a challenge to find reality, they're still, they have that deep longing. And I think that's helpful in evangelizing, I think, and even in apologetics is to help them sift through all of the all of the just fallen natures, uh, you know, things. And, and maybe that's one way that we can help reawaken true desires, don't you think? Thoughts on that? Yeah. Um, first of all, I think we need to, uh, as Christians, we would understand this, that when we talk about our desires uh, and it, as the Lord draws us towards him, um, scripture is very evident that when it says that we basically mute those desires or we suppress those desires that would lean towards God. Uh, and that's because of sin within us. Yeah. So we need to be understanding and recognizing that it is God's work of initiating the baptizing of our imagination. That's where it begins and that's where it must begin. 
uh, and then we orient our desires and longings towards God, who ultimately provides us the purpose and meaning by which we should be living and finding our ultimate you know, um, uh, satisfaction and uh, contentment in. Uh, if you see a lot many uh, successful athletes, uh, Hollywood stars, uh, people who have achieved much in their life in terms of worldly, uh, you know, um, uh, success. Uh, but at the same time, we hear time and again of stories of people um, finding complete discontentment with their life to the point that they, they don't want to live anymore. And I think that does happen all because they ultimately don't see the good that they are trying to achieve is founded ultimately in the source of that good. And that's what needs to happen. Uh, and initially it happens, I believe, through the work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, yeah, ultimately. Ultimately. Sure, yeah. Uh, but it, practically if we see uh, what needs to happen is that we need to be understanding that these longings that we have of things, especially in the world, uh, our longings are not disconnected with uh, aesthetic capital that we have created around us, right? Whatever we have within the culture, Whatever we desire uh, in this world that we have, we need to be knowing that uh, while we might have uh, been involved in creating those cultural capital and things like that, but ultimately, if there is any good in that, it, we need to be finding that good in the source, ultimate source of that, which is God. Right. And when we misidentify the source, that's when a lot of frustration happens, mm-hmm. for sure. Uh, and we always replace it yeah. with something else. We'll always do that. Uh, from a biblical viewpoint, it's idolatry, right? Right. When we misidentify the object of our longing and replace it with something else, we create idol out, out of that. So what are some examples of, uh, let's say, trying to reawaken desire, but it uh, we, we uh, find it elsewhere? What are some of the examples today, let's say, in young people? Maybe uh, social media, you know, trying to find meaning and identity. Uh, so if they don't find it in Jesus, they find it uh, in social media. And then we know that that fails. And I think there is also this uh, idol of creating your own individual atomistic identity, right? That you want to be unique. Whereas the scripture does say that every individual is created uniquely and beautifully right? right that that's the true source of that truth right whereas when we actually have this idea of the whole idea of expressive individualism that carl truman talks about right um whereas we're trying to create our own identity on the basis of our longings uh, around which we set the boundaries right we don't actually stay within the boundary that god has set but we actually define what true meaning and purpose for our life is and in doing so we create idols. We create um, uh, things even to the point that even uh, wanting to actually go and help the destitute. Sure. We should be asking, am I doing it for the sake uh, or, or the goodness that is there or for the sake that it makes me feel good right. and provides me with some personal identity? So, yeah, we got to be careful about those uh, good things. They are good, uh, but sometimes if the motivation is not good, then the whole enterprise just falls apart. Yes. Yeah, ultimately. And that could be so hard sometimes for young people to discern and, and could be very confusing. 
But at the same time, it's good that those things are are being thought about and 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 acted upon. So I think as cultural apologists, our job is just to direct those desires to um, to the ultimate source of goodness, truth, and beauty. Hey, Logan, do you have anything to add to that? So again, we're talking about ways to reawaken desires and maybe how to develop good desires versus bad desires. Yeah, so there's there's two things that um, come to mind. And th- the first one has to do with um, what Gould is saying, what C.S. Lewis is saying. In reawakening desire, you have to be careful that how they're using that, that term desire isn't in itself good or bad. It's just reawakening longing for things. And some of those things will be bad, some of those things will be good, because what characterizes a desire to be good or bad is what is it aiming at. And there are tons of reasons why people will sort of forego desires, you know, things like disappointment, right? You, you've gone on a date with a few times, and then the relationship falls apart, and I'm never getting another relationship. Or if it's sports, you know, I'm not going to try hard. I don't want to commit to winning or competing because I don't like losing. So there's a lot of reasons why people would shut down and say, I don't want to facilitate, you know, have those desires and, and compete and do those sorts of things. So there's the reawakening of the desires, and from there is what you get, this dialectic of desire. And I can give an example, like for uh, porn, uh, pornography, or even social media. This idea is that, say, the desire is for a, it ends up being a porn addiction, right? Mm-hmm. Along the way, and what you should come to realize as someone who's active in it, through this dialectic, is you'll realize that what you end up falling in love with is not a person, or you don't end up desiring a person, you end up desiring an idea or a feeling, and you'll realize that that feeling could never be satisfied by a a person. And so you'll always be left wanting in any of the kinds of relationships you'll be in. Social media would be the same way, where if you're pursuing social media, maybe for popularity, and you realize that, oh, 30 likes was great, but then you get 40 likes, you're like, that's great, and 60 and 100, and you realize wow, the the kind of the well of life is never filled. And so the dialectic of desire, if you if you had the courage to pursue that all the way, you'd come to these realization that, oh, the porn addiction is bad because it will never be satisfied. I'll constantly be going in this cycle of pursuing more and more and more. And there's tons of scientific evidence to, to demonstrate that. Or social media, you continue down the dialectic of desire, you'll come to realize that, popularity won't save you from the want of having a meaningful existence. This would be in contrast to maybe a, 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 an easy confusion with wisdom, which would be someone saying, hey, don't pursue a, uh, a pornography because at the end of that trail is going to be something that's wanting. Don't pursue media, social media uh, popularity because at the end of that road is wanting of meaning and significance. So there's and, and that's what I want to add. The dialectic of desire is that path through which we pursue desires to the final end and realizing that they're wanting or not wanting. And what C.S. Lewis talks about is if you continue to do that, you do your porn thing, you do your social media thing, you do your sports competition thing, you'll realize at the end, like Solomon did, it seems like all the contents are not filling up the human well. And so what's left? And this is what Lewis says. It seems like we're like a fish who knows we're wet. Something outside the universe seems to have to satisfy that well. Aristotle did the same thing. Rayleigh did the same thing. Plato did the same thing. And I think we will never come to these truths that we do 
experience experientially, if I may say uh, that way, um, uh, by reason alone. I think we also need to be relying on a standard which is above us, right? Uh, whereby we abide by it and fulfill it. And I think the ultimate uh, law or ultimate standard derives from God alone. There, that's why revelation plays such a vital role when it comes to living a flourishing life. Right. And we live in a world where we have completely abandoned that. That's why it is so much important and necessary for a Christian to come to the Word of God. Uh, and we need to be baptized and sanctify our imagination according to the standard and the law that God has set. And not just if we're purely depending on our reason to justify our stand, our own standards, I think we'll fail ourselves. We right. need both. We need God's revelation and reason as a right. standard of truth to define and sanctify our imaginations. Yeah. Oh, that, that's good, Jacob. Yeah, let me, okay, go ahead. Uh, go ahead, Logan. Let me just real, real quick on this one, because I, I think this is important. The, the dialectic of reason is a dialectic desire isn't a like a rational enterprise. It's not through thinking about pornography do you come to realize it's empty. Hmm. It's through the testing and failing and the desires. But what's important is where Jacob ended, and that's this idea that Christ does fulfill this. And this goes straight to the, the example of the woman at the well, right? Christ asks about her husband, she, I don't know, kind of gives you know, the soft answer. And they go, oh, it's because you have tons of husbands, and the, the one who's with isn't here. And they have this conversation, and Christ is like, but I will give you the living water that you no longer thirst. And people are like, wow, this is serious. No, mm-hmm. obviously the woman knows exactly what Christ is talking about. That is, she's pursuing something, and none, none of the husbands have been able to fix it for her, whatever this is, right? And Christ says, but I will fix that mm-hmm. if, you, if you come back, if you follow me. And that's where you get yeah. the revelation, is that Christ does come and say, actually, there are all these, if you follow the, the dialectic of, desire, you're going to come wanting, and Christ makes very explicit claims, I'll actually fulfill that desire. No, that's great. That's a perfect example. Also, the whole water thing, the woman at the well was thinking, uh, you know, physical water, Mm. and and, uh, Jesus was offering her water so that she would never thirst again. So it would be a thirst that would be, uh, I guess, satisfied. So that's good. No. Uh, The the other thing I was going to say is... um, you mentioned this, Jacob, and we can get into it. And by the way, you came up with a subtext for this show, right? Capturing the imagination for Christ. Uh, one of the tools that we have is our imagination uh, to help reawaken desires, and uh, spe- especially uh, proper desires. Uh, Dr. Gold here in the book uh, made a strong claim about how imagination works a- at this, and I'm just going to read... Um, what he said about this, about imagination. He said, we are captured by that which captivates our imagination. And once hooked, we're hooked. It may take time for the rest of us, our mind and will, to assent to what has captured our imagination, as it did for Lewis. But without the imagination, the mind, and this is where it's really strong, a a strong uh, assertion here, But without the imagination, the mind lacks the raw materials needed to judge something as true or false. Um, What do you guys think of that? Uh, He continues, The will possesses nothing to judge as worthy or unworthy of our devotion. So, yeah, there's a... He makes a big deal out of imagination. And Mm -hmm. uh, maybe if we could step back 
and, and think about how maybe that comes to us. And I actually agree with Dr. Gold here. Um, uh, and I think, Logan, if I'm not mistaken, you said something about how not everything really comes through uh, the rational mind. Uh, sometimes, I know I used to be a rationalist. I repented of that long ago. <laughs> but uh, there are certain things that that animate us that really doesn't come through the cognitive faculty. And if we're honest with ourselves... That's exactly how we live our lives, right? Something yeah. captivates us. Uh, and let me give you one example. I've traveled quite a bit uh, at different places, and I've seen wherever I've traveled that whenever an individual or people, when, whenever they are confronted with beauty in nature, right? Wherever I've been, uh, go to any mountains in India, for example, any hills, uh, any, any place that looks uh, really scenic and beautiful, you'd find that people have this longing for worship, worshiping something, mm -hmm. something beyond themselves and wanting to submit to that. I think uh, God even uses nature yes. to reveal his nature to his people. Right? We'll that's talk just, more about that yeah, later for sure. Yeah, that's one of the examples. Likewise, I think Dr. Gould talks about the aesthetic currency that God can use, story, poetry, music, symbols, and images that God can use to awaken our desires. Right. And these are, in a way, some tangible things. Right, right. Right? We can even use this to mislead people, to actually mislead ourselves, using our imagination to go where it shouldn't go. But God even redeems that to bring us back to himself. Well, that's a perfect segue, uh, Jacob. Yeah. So the second step here is to uh, return to reality. So you were talking about uh, certain things that are in reality, like the arts, music, stories, uh, aesthetics, beauty, all of those things that we encounter every day. And I know sometimes we are so, you've heard of the expression, right? Uh, we're so heavenly minded, we're no, of no earthly good. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, and, and actually, uh, some scholars have pointed this out. Um, there, there was a move back in the, uh, you know, several centuries ago uh, to to the world of idealism. Like, you know, they're kind of like back to Plato's forms or, I mean, that's that's just fancy way of saying. We, we had, we constructed this idea in our minds that certain things ought to be uh, or ought to behave a certain way. But it, it's good to uh, be reminded that sometimes idealism actually just um, evolves into ideaism. I kind of like that. And uh, I mean, I, 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 like, I, I like that as a reminder to not get into that because now it seems like reality or our daily lives are just ideas in our minds if we're not careful. And then we really just miss out on living life, right? Mm -hmm. With all of its hurts, pain, suffering, joys, desires, all of those kinds of things. So I kind of like this uh, second step, the return to reality. Um, did you want to add anything to that, Logan or, or Jacob? I'll just add one thing. Uh, the symptom of our age is that we uh, are always tempted to create alternative reality. And in doing so, we enthrone uh, created gods, and we devote our worship to those gods. 
And I think uh, return to reality, the reality that God has set before us, is vital and necessary. Yeah, I like um, Gold's treatment on this, and he points out that, um, you know, in Acts chapter 14, when Paul and Barnabas, when they were ministering and they uh, came upon a lame person and uh, healed that lame man, and uh, the crowd, they were uh, rejoicing, but (laughs) they actually thought, Paul and Barnabas were gods and began to offer sacrifices to them. And, of course, Paul and Barnabas, um, they were uh, disheartened. And the text says, you know, they tore their robes, a sign of really um, just displeasure and everything. But um, when when the the way they they could have used that, I mean, you, you would think that they could have scolded everybody and said, well, well, uh, what 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 he, he, Paul and Barnabas did? They directed all, all of that to God ultimately. But it's interesting in in uh, Acts fourteen, right? He, he didn't come out and say to to say you guys are wicked. You guys have to repent. You're um, a bunch of sinners. Instead, what uh, what did Paul and Barnabas do? They um, do you have the text there? I think it's uh, chapter fourteen, sixteen, and seventeen. Uh, Paul basically points them uh, to the world and then argues that the living God is its creator, right? Instead of, uh, yeah, pointing to directly, because they didn't have a plausibility structure in terms of understanding what sin is or what forgiveness is. So he points them to the world that God has offered them and questions their presuppositions on that and argues that they need to be pointing to God as the creator. Right. Um, uh, So... God, basically, they, Paul, what he does is that he calls his listeners to take note of the created things that yields pleasure, like food, rain, and seasons of growth and fruitfulness. Um, so what Paul, Dr. Gold is saying is that the good and pleasurable things in this world witness to God, who is good and delights in all that he has made. And that's the point there. And I think many yes. times we miss that aspect completely, uh, all in the name of uh, being pietistic. Yeah, I know. Right? Uh, whereas God, who has created all things good, um, um, gives those good things to us if we rightly desire it for his honor. That's right. And according to his purpose for our own life. And I like that. I think that's a great reminder. Sometimes we apologize or those who seek to uh, witness or evangelize the lost, we're all about pointing out the sin, which eventually that needs to happen. But uh, wouldn't it be nice and refreshing if we tried to establish common ground first? So I think in this day and age, the mere mention of religion or faith or Christianity or Bible— might turn people off. But I think what Paul and Barnabas did here, they established common ground and, again, pointed uh, everyone to its ultimate source, which Uh, is God. And without assuming any moral neutrality. That's right. They were not building bridges to cross it, rather to bring people to their side. That's right. That's right. 
uh, that, that was so uh, evident in their approach, right? Uh, in fact, food, rain, all of those things uh, Paul and Barnabas mentioned, and, and the listeners, the crowd could have easily related. It's almost like what Paul did again uh, a few chapters later, Acts 17, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I always give this example. When Peter preached, the listeners had a plausibility structure, and there we see a conversion of 3,000 people. Whereas in Acts 17, when Paul is preaching to uh, the Athenians uh, uh, and on the Mars Hill, people have no plausibility structure in terms of understanding this resurrected Messiah. And he reaches out to them using their worldview and showing them the flaws in it and offering the truth in the midst of that. I like that. Logan, did you have anything to add to that? Uh, yeah, uh, a few things. Um, I like, I, mean, I, I appreciate everything that Jacob's saying. He's just nailing it tonight. Um, imagination, as I'll make a comment about imagination, I'll make a comment about returning to reality. Um, for the imagination, uh, Gould is, you know, he's tapping into a, a tradition here with Lewis and Chesterton and George MacDonald and Tolkien and, and their kind of uh, group where they're asking the question, if we're going to help guide culture, right, back to the, as Lewis would say, the true myth, you have to tell the right stories. And Lewis makes the case that the right stories, the ones that resonate with society, are the ones that tend to pull the stuff out from our backyard. You know, they connect with moon adventures because they can find the human condition in their backyard, and that's what's being taken to the moon. Take something like Harry Potter, for example. Millions of people love that series. It's, it's, it's a story about love, different kinds of love. And the villain, right, the kind of the, the pinnacle point is an individual who threw away everything, shattered his soul, has no friends, right? This kind of idea that you have no friends, and, and I'm sorry for it. You know, Harry's comments to Voldemort, you have no friends, and you can't love anyone. I feel sorry for you. And the entire eight-book series is about love. And so it's real. The imagination has a way of bringing in the things that we love most, our desires, courage, you know, the epics, into a story that we can understand and resonate with. Now, what does it have to do with reality? Usually those are in two different different scopes. You either have reality or you have the imagination, and Lewis disagreed with, with that bifurcation. Gould seems to be also disagreeing with that bifurcation, and, and it comes down to something very simple. If a, say, a mother or a father has no desires for their children, they're never going to know their children. That's, you know, you can't have a dis, sort of disassociated, sterilized view of your children. You have to love them unconditionally, not, I will love them unless they disappoint me, or I will love them only if they give me a greater joy. You start out with real, you know, awakening and desire for your kids, and there will be disappointment and there will be joy. And through that journey, you'll come to see what it is like to love another human being unconditionally which is the commandment that Christ gave us to love others like he loved us unconditionally. So that's how the imagination reawakens desires and it ultimately permeates how we interact in our day-to-day walk. And it depends upon the acts of the transcendent, that ultimately things are important and this is what Christ gives us. It's the yeah. command directly from Christ going back to what Jacob said. It's, it's a revelation in a, in a sense. No, that's good. That's good. Thanks, Logan. So I know our our time is almost coming to an end. So I'm going to ask you guys what you guys think of uh, 
the argument from desires. So maybe in you know uh, an apologetics reference book, everything that we've uh, talked about so far could just be distilled into the argument from desire. Uh, I'm curious what you guys think about this. Um, like I know Dr. Gold here in the book pointed out that um, uh, Peter Kraft thought that uh, the argument from desire is just as strong as Anselm's ontological argument. Uh, that that that's heavy. That's heavy stuff, you know. Uh, I did not consider it until I read that th- th- there, uh, but I actually agree. Uh, mm-hmm. What are you guys' thoughts on uh, just the whole argument from desire? Um, one in one minute. <laughs> I think it's definitely a strong uh, argument, given that every individual participates in that, uh, just like the moral argument. Uh, as strong that is, I would say uh, the argument from desire is also a strong uh, argument in, in terms of uh, God's existence and uh, his dealing with human beings. So what I would say is that as Christians in our apologetics, we need to be understanding is that uh, one of the key things about Christian faith is that we believe in um, God becoming incarnate and dealing with human story. Yeah. And we shouldn't be missing that aspect. And that must inform uh, every imagination that we have and deliver uh, uh, what God has called us to do in this world. I love it. Hey, uh, Logan, in like 20 seconds, uh, what do you think of the <laughs> argument from desire? <laughs> um, yeah, I think I think while there will always be a lot of rational objections to the argument from desire, I think that if you look in culture, if you look at history, Desires are the things that shape nations, shape cultures, has shaped history. It's probably one of the most powerful forces out there. Um, and at the end of the day, I think it's kind of this come and see argument. You know, you're going to have desires. Look at the people who have them, see what they're doing. And I think the the proof will be in the pudding, like Chesterton said. Like, the argument of original sin is like the one doctrine that doesn't have to be proved because you see it in the streets. Everyone's desiring things, or even the desire to not desire things. It's a, it's a very interesting situation where the human being is in. I think it's extremely persuasive if you actually pursue it. Love it. Thanks, Logan, for that. Hey, you've been listening to the Apologetics.com radio show where we challenge believers to think and thinkers to believe. Our hope is that you've learned something, uh, some aspect about the Christian worldview that strengthens your faith and make you want to learn more. Special thanks to uh, my panel tonight, Jacob and Logan, and to our sound engineer, Jared. Special thank you to our listeners. Until next time, goodbye. <laughs>